What is up, guys? My name is KJ, and this is Raw Theology. Um, today, I have with me a special guest, Pastor Josh. He's been in my last episode. You guys remember I presented a, a case for Historic Pre-Mill, episode one. And so you were part of that, man. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, man. My name is uh, Josh Aguilar, and me and KJ go back uh, for a while now. And uh, I'm just here. Uh, living in Little Rock and serving my church at Fellowship Espanol. Yeah, I definitely appreciate you, man, for um, taking our time to do this with me, man. Uh, no, no, it's, it's an honor, man. <laughs> it's the guy I go to to help me with my sermons, so he, he helped me, man. <laughs> the guys, if you guys need help writing sermons, you guys, you know, aspiring dreams to be a preacher, man, it's the guy that you guys can go to. He helps y'all. <laughs> now, um, what have you been up to, man, since we last spoke, man? Just still working? Oh, uh, yeah, working hard, man, especially after the snow, you know, after the snow with the kind of shut down uh, our business uh, where I work, you know, a FedEx. Yeah. So uh, we're trying to get caught up now and uh, hopefully be caught up uh, after this weekend. Yeah, for you guys who don't know, we had like a snow apocalypse last week and so everybody recovered. I think we were last. Yeah. It was real bad. Um, a lot of the, you know, the fossils, I think, froze, whatever. All the piping and stuff is messed up. You know, houses falling apart. It was real bad, I believe. I'm not mistaken. I think it's still going on right now, actually. Yeah, it is. So thank God it wasn't, you know, as bad, you know, worse as it could have been here in Arkansas, little Arkansas. But um, I guess I, I guess get us to the subject. Um, you remember last week, or not last week? The last time we kind of recorded, we talked about a case for historic premium, and I made an episode in between that. Of course, I talked about the first and second resurrection. Kind of why that presents a case for premium. You guys can definitely go check those out. If you guys haven't um, listened to episodes one and two, you probably should listen to that first. I guess before you continue listening to this episode. But um, Mr. Josh, can you kind of tell them what we're kind of dealing with as far as eschatology and kind of what I guess premium is, and then we kind of get to our topic today. Uh, you know, when it comes to eschatology, we're studying the, the study of last things. That's kind of what eschatology means, the study of last things. And so uh, we're, what we're doing here, what uh, me and KJ did last time, is kind of developing a case for pre-historic uh, millennium, millennial view. Um, sorry, I got choked up there. But um, that's kind of what we're doing here at, uh, on KJ's podcast. Uh, we're looking at the, this uh, view on uh, the study of the last things. Perfect, man. Perfect. And now, how would you define, uh, I guess, pre-mill? Pre-mill is uh, we believe that Christ will come before the millennium, the, where he institutes the thousand-year reign. So we believe that Christ comes before the thousand-year reign. That's what millennium means, a thousand years. So we believe Christ will come before uh, the thousand-year reign. And you take that, most people take that thousand-year way if you're, if you're Pre-millennial, you'll take that thousand-year reign literal. So Christ will come, reign for a thousand years, and then uh, he'll judge the, the living and the dead, and the end of all things will come. Yes. And, of course, that kind of differs from, you know, post-mill, all-mill, everyone listening. Now, um, the reason why I want to kind of, I guess, do this episode is because, like, there's a lot of, um, I guess, controversy over this you know a lot of people won't tell the whole truth i guess i don't know why but uh, we're gonna be dealing with a case for historic pre-meal from the church itself so you guys remember um i think maybe my last episode in part two i talked about why um it's called a historic pre-meal you guys know it kind of distinguishes itself from dispensational pre-meal it's kind of associated with the no left behind series all that kind of stuff with the preacher rapture you know two separate plans for the church and Israel, all that kind of stuff that you guys know is kind of false. But historic pre-mill is what the church believed. When I say church, I'm not talking about us today. I'm talking about the Christians who lived during the time of Apostle John and afterwards, like for the first three centuries. And a lot of these church fathers, we would call them, they kind of knew John personally. And so we're kind of dealing with what was the eschatology uh, behind the early church fathers and why it kind of presents a case for historic premium. And so the reason why I guess I kind of held back on this episode a little bit too, is because I know a lot of people, you know, they always say this, which I kind of agree with on, we shouldn't go to history to kind of, I guess, 
you know, triumph the scriptures, but rather the scripture triumphs history. But history, I guess, possibly could play, I guess, a role in, I guess, you know, how we interpret certain passages, maybe. But I'm gonna give it to Mr. Josh. So I guess I actually our, our first question today, man. Um, does history, in fact, triumph the scriptures? Uh, no, history, in fact, does not triumph the scriptures. <laughs> what? Uh, the scriptures are the sole authority uh, for life and godliness, as we believe as, believe as Christians. So no, history does not triumph uh, scriptures. But I think history, there is a place for it as we study the scriptures, mm. uh, as we study uh, what others have taught what the Bible means. Um, so I think there's a place for it, but no, his, history does not triumph scriptures. And that's kind of where, you know, that's kind of, that was part of the Reformation there were um, tradition, and, you know, within the Roman Catholic Church mm -hmm. uh, was trumping the scriptures. And uh, the reformer said that that should not be. So they kind of protested against that. And that's kind of where we got, uh, you know, the Bible alone. Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura. Definitely. Thank you for that answer, man. Well, I guess it kind of leads to the next one, too. I guess kind of piggyback on what you just said. So since history doesn't, in fact, you know, triumph the scriptures, is there a need, I guess, to even bother with Christian history at all? Yeah, I, I, even though uh, history does not triumph the scriptures, I think history is important uh, for, for us as believers. You know, if you look at 1 Corinthians 10, um, if 1 Corinthians 10 talks about um, a warning against idolatry. Paul was talking to the Corinthians and he says, uh, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, but they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness now verse six is important here when we talk about christian history so now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did and do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play we must not indulge as they did and uh you know paul's using history in the negative effect as as we learn, look back and look at the Israelites with Moses, it said we should not be like them. So there's one thing that history teaches us is to not do the wrong thing. Um, but also history teaches us uh, what others have thought, taught when we're looking at this case, uh, uh, um, eschatology. Hmm. History has shown us the different views and who holds those views on eschatology. Um, there's another passage here in, in Psalm 78, which was interesting when it comes to history. Um, let me pull it up real quick. All right. Is it 78 verse three and four, so Psalm 78, three and four says, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from, our ch from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. So right there, and that the psalmist takes the positive effect to pass these things on, not only to your children and to later generations. So it's important, you know, to look back at what history, what the apostles taught, what, what the apostles' disciples taught, what the disciples of the apostles' disciples taught, and so forth and so forth. You know, you get down all the way to the reformers and then uh, you know, to those who, the Jesus movement. And so I think history is important. Uh, there's a legacy that we follow, you know, a trail um, that we follow. And every culture, you know, has its different battles. Uh, and you see the, you know, how the scriptures have been interpreted to fight those battles in the cultures that they lived in. I was going to actually talk about that, too, because you think about that, like, you know, history is important, but a lot of times it's the context of the history, I guess, is even more crucial. So, like, for example, someone in history may say something today. Of course, if they're saying some heresy, I'm not saying, you know, look into it because if it's heresy, you know, you are not to look into it. But like somebody, may, especially like in the early church, we'll talk about it a little bit. They may say something that's kind of, you know, I guess outlandish from what we would say, but they, it may have a different meaning, I guess. And that context in which it was used versus how we would use it today. 
Now, of course, again, if we're saying some heresy, I'm not saying to look into that, but you guys know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, everything that we teach, you know, everything that they taught, everything that we teach should be filtered through the word of God. Mm. And, and just because, you know, some people, some of these people are giants of the faith. I know, you know, Augustine, John Calvin, uh, even when you, you think of people that were closer to the apostles like Polycarp and you know, these guys were giants of the faith. They're close to the apostles or, and they preached thousands of sermons and written, written hundreds of books and done great things for God, but they're still human like us, you know, mm. they're still fallen. They're still sinful and they still can make mistakes. So you still need to go back to the word of God to make sure, you know, what you believe is truth and not error. Hmm. I want to piggyback off that too. So like when you think about what you just said, we think about like, uh, like the Bible, for example, the Bible is the inspired word of God. And so all the men who wrote the Bible, they were under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so apart from the Holy Spirit, you know, the words that they've written will be kind of filled with error. But the reason why the, the Bible is without error because, or infallible it's because God was the one, he's the main author of the word of God. And so kind of what you just said, like in history, you may see people like John Calvin or Augustine have wrong theology in certain parts, but like you said, um, it's solar scriptura alone. And so we don't go to our favorite theologians to interpret the word of God for us. They may help us, but we should go to the scriptures first. Right, right. Go to this, always go to the source, man. Uh, it's great to learn from what other people thought, but ultimately you want to go to, to the source and, and and you know base your argument off what the scriptures say uh it's good to learn from others of what they taught and what they what they uh have to say concerning scripture but ultimately you want to go to the source hmm. now i guess to kind of help us set the scene up a little bit we're dealing with again eschatology but like the framework of which we're working in is you know of course church history so just, I guess, I guess I asked you this question and actually a follow-up question. Do we have any, like, I guess, estimate dates of when the John, the Apostle John, I meant, possibly died? Uh, I, I, you know, this, what I've studied and looked into John's death, they'd mm -hmm. say anywhere, you know, around AD 100 was when he lived to be about 93, 94. Mm -hmm. um, and he probably died around the AD 100, right at the turn of the century right there. Probably in Ephesus, probably or either on Ephesus or in uh, the Isle of Patmos. Hmm. What do you think, man? Yeah, I'm kind of similar to you. I know that's not, I guess kind of some differences in agreements, you know, controversial secondary issue. You know, some probably would say that he died before uh, or at least read the book uh, of Revelation before 7 AD. And so all those things he wrote in Revelation kind of referring back to events that happened in 7 AD. Um, that's kind of one argument, but like for me, we kind of know that when he was on the island of Patmos, he probably died on that island or, you know, who knows? I know some of the church fathers say that he lived a little bit afterwards. I don't know, like I said, but like, I think Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, he said that John died about 96, 80, something like that, 96 AD. Right, right. Not what you just said. So uh, he was actually one of John, I guess in a lineage of kind of like that discipleship of the apostle John. A church by the Irenaeus, so maybe he knows a little bit more than I do about the <laughs> about John. <laughs> so I guess yeah, yeah. interest him. Uh, you know, John had a, quite a few disciples actually that, that are uh, well known. Polycarp and Ignatius are two most famous ones. Yeah. Now, I guess it kind of leads to our next topic. So, like, when you I guess bring about Polycarp and Ignatius, um, now are these people? that directly knew the Apostle John, or these people just kind of knew of the Apostle John? No, I believe they were people that knew the Apostle John. You know, Paul, uh, the John had a, a direct effect on their lives. Hmm. So like in a, in a certain way, for example, like, you know, us as Christians, we're called to make disciples, not just share the gospel, but make disciples. And so we're, we can infer from this that these people, Polycarp and Ignatius, they were the people directly that John, again, made disciples of. Right, right, right. You know, because you think of, you know, many people, I know you're studying Revelations right now, too. So many people think of the, those seven churches of Revelation that John was the, the bishop or the main presbyter over all those seven churches. And then you look at Polycarp, who was the church pastor of the church in Smyrna. Mm -hmm. And you look at Ignatius, who was also from Ephesus. And you think you, you, 
you can't but think that Paul had influence or John had influence on these guys' lives, especially with Polycarp being the pastor of the church in Smyrna. And Ignatius right there in Ephesus where, where John was ministering, you know. Now, I guess when we're, when we're thinking about this subject right here, or like kind of what you just said, kind of piggyback off of it, if it's possible that these people, Polycarp and Ignatius, they knew John personally, like you just said, um, Polycarp was the pastor at Smyrna. In Revelation, John is writing to that church. He's speaking on behalf of Jesus Christ himself, telling them that, hey, you guys can look at chapter two, kind of what Jesus kind of told them. But do you think they probably would have gotten, I guess, how we are to interpret the book of Revelation from John himself? Is that a possible explanation? I think so. You know, and they're directly linked linked to John. So, you know, I can't imagine them not having questions that they've asked of him. <laughs> so it probably be, yeah, I, I, you go ahead. Go, go ahead, man. I was gonna say it'd probably be kind of difficult, I guess, for us, I guess, for example, let's just kind of, I guess, make it, a, I guess, a modern illustration. So let's say, for example, you know, you're John and I'm Polycarp. And we have another guy over here, he's Ignatius. And you kind of, I guess, received the vision of Revelation. You wrote the book down, but you're also, I guess, you know, my, the, you know, you're discipling me. And so with you being my disciple or, you know, my disciple, or how do you want to call it? <laughs> with me being your disciple, you kind of telling me and teaching me the word of God it would be, I guess, kind of difficult for me to come to any other conclusion from the person who directly wrote the book of, I guess, how we are to interpret the Revelation, right? Right, right, right. And I, you know, and that's uh, something we need to consider when we study the, you know, study of last things is, you know, what are these guys saying since they were so close to John? What are, what are, what do they say about what John wrote? Because um, it's important, it's 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 valid. You know that's kind of what's important when we look at history and Christian theology. You know it's, you know the closer you get to the source, the better, uh, the more clear a teaching becomes. Hmm. So I think it's it's important to find out if, you know what these guys did say about um, what John wrote in Revelation. Now before I ask you that question, in fact, you kind of what they directly stated. Cause I know some people are in their heads and thinking, well, if you guys are going to say this, then what about, you know, the church fathers on baptism or generation? You know, I'm sure you guys don't agree with them. Or what about, you know, the, the view on the Lord's Supper, all these other things, I guess. And so I guess to kind of save us the time, when you directly look at the writings of Ignatius and Polycarp, I don't, I, I didn't find any writings, I guess, as far as, you know, baptism or generation. And I also looked at it like what they viewed about salvation. It's the same gospel message that we preach today salvation in Christ alone and grace alone through him, saved by him alone, not by our works. And so these guys are not heretics. The, uh, the disciples, of course, the Polycarp and Ignatius. Now there are some church fathers, I guess you would call heretics, many people did call them, but as far as Ignatius and Polycarp are concerned, these guys are pretty solid. But now, kind of what you said earlier, these guys are not the source, you know, the objective source that we have, like the scriptures, but so they have some errors probably in their theology, like all of us, for example, but I'm sure they probably would have at least known what John was talking about in the book of Revelation. What do you think though, Mr. Josh? Yeah, I think, you know, like I said, you know, when you get closer to the source, for example, if you want to learn about Martin Luther King, you know, you want to learn about not only what Martin Luther King said and did, you know, from himself, but you get to, to know the people around him and what they said about Martin Luther King. So, you know, the closer you get to the source with John, with, you know, Irenaeus and uh, Polycarp, or Ignatius and Polycarp, um, the closer you get to John, you know, the guys that actually taught, that were taught by him, uh, you get to understand a little bit of what he passed along to them. Now, what was it, in fact, that he taught them? Do you have some, like, some of the writings of Ignatius and Polycarp, what they taught on this issue of, I guess, you know, how to interpret the book of Revelation as far as the you know, pre-mill, amill, post-mill concern? Well, here's what uh, I heard. What, I found this quote by Polycarp, which was uh, interesting. It says, uh, if we please him in this present world, we shall receive also the future world according as he has promised to us that he will raise us up again from the dead and that if we live worthily of him we shall also reign together with him provided only we believe in like manner let the young men also be blameless in all things since every 
lust warreth against the spirit, and neither fornicators nor feminine nor abuser himself with mankind shall inherit the kingdom of God. So you, you talk, you know, you hear Polycarp talk about the resurrection, the future world, uh, reigning with Christ, all, all themes, you know, within uh, Revelation. Um, and he talks about belief, talks about those that would, won't inherit the kingdom of God. You know, and defending the blessings to be found in the millennial kingdom. Uh, <clears throat> Irenaeus wrote, the elders who saw John, the disciple of the Lord, related that they had heard him, from him how the Lord used to teach in regard to these times. And uh, you have to remember that Polycarp was a student of the apostle John and the teacher of Irenaeus. Mm -hmm. So he is very likely to be one of the elders that delivered teachings on the millennium. And I Irenaeus soon also after wrote that the millennium blessings were born witness in, in, in writing by Papias, the hearer of John and the companion of Polycarp. So these guys believed in a millennium, like a thousand year reign of Christ. Hmm. Now, did you have, um, were you able to find also, I guess, maybe some writer, um, some writings from Ignatius to John's other disciple? Let's see here. I think I have a quote here. Uh, let's see. And it is kind of interesting, like you said, Polycarp kind of is teaching kind of what the pre-meal, I guess what my people call pre-meal, would teach today. There is a future kingdom. That Christ uh, here's one I believe is from Ignatius. It says that there will be a millennium after the resurrection of the dead when the kingdom of Christ will be set up in a material form on this earth. Hmm. Um, and that's, again, they're talking about a millennium after the resurrection of the dead. Uh, a thousand a reign of Christ here on earth so it's just interesting that they mention these things you know uh pointing to historical pre-mill what we would call historical pre-mill you know they called it something else but we call it historical pre-mill yes so I guess too um when I guess with Ignatius for example for somebody who does not know you guys were to go look in Revelation chapter 20 you see what's called a first and the second resurrection Take a couple of steps back in the beginning of chapter 19. You know, a lot of people say that you know the millennium, I guess, a view for the millennium starts in chapter 20, or it really starts in chapter 19, verse 11. You have Christ returning, he defeats the antichrist, he defeats the false prophet, and then finally he deals with that ancient serpent, that dragon, the devil. He throws him into a pit. And so, I'm sure you guys have read the New Testament, it says, When Christ returns, we'll be like, be like him and see him as he is. And so, all those who have died of all times trusting in Jesus, they will rise uh, from their graves and get their resurrected bodies. And of course, we who are left will be called up in the sky to meet him. This is what's called a rapture. And so it's a posture rapture. Um, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but like, let's say, for example, uh, I just say, I guess, for time's sake, there's a seven-year period. At the end of that seven-year period, Christ will return to the end of that, and the church will go through that period. And so for us today, who are alive today, if Christ were to return in our time, we would not... Um, be rose from the grave because we would be raptured in the sky to get our you know, new bodies. But all those saints um, of all ages in the Old Testament and New Testament today who died trusting in Jesus, they were rise from the graves for new bodies. And so Ignatius is saying after the first resurrection, there will be a real life literal king, uh, kingdom here on earth, millennial kingdom. So it's kind of, I guess, Interesting that again, John directly taught Polycarp and Ignatius, and Ignatius is saying the same thing that people hold to the historic premier kind of saying. What do you think, on Mr. Josh? Yeah, I think it's interesting. It's something to take notice. You know, like I said, you know, when we go to history, it's not like I believe in prehistoric premier because of what these guys said, mm -hmm. but it's interesting to note that this, they say this after they've been taught by the Apostle John, you know, so it kind of gives credibility to historical premier. But it's not the reason to believe historical pre-mill. Hmm. That's wonderful, man. Now, um, how did the early church, so like, I guess if we move past, you know, Ignatius or um, Polycarp, because maybe some people say, well, no, that's just two people. Don't, again, they're not the source, you know, could they have gotten wrong? Could they have heard it wrong from John? What did the rest of the church, the early church, believe about, you know, eschatology? How would you kind of help us in that area, Mr. Josh? You know, the, the early church, actually, you know, they define, the word they use is, is Chileism. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but 
And it's basically the belief that there's a future thousand year reign of Christ where the perfect peaceful reign of the Lord Jesus will be the king on the earth. And they called it Chileism. We call it historical pre-mill. They call it Chileism. And Chileastic uh, uh, interpretation of Revelation actually was uh, the dominant view in the second and third centuries of the Christian era. When you look study Christian history, they took a literal interpretation of Revelation 20, you know, verses four and five. And they look forward to that thousand year reign with Christ on earth. Hmm. Uh, so when you look through, you know, throughout history, you'll see a lot of them uh, believed in that, what they call Ch Chileism, and we call uh, historical pre-mill. And they look forward to that thousand year uh, reign with Christ. Uh, 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 Wainwright mentions a number of important early church figures who were also Chileus. Uh, chief among them were Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Lactanius. Um, so it's not it's not just two guys. You know the you know you think about uh, Polycarp and Ignatius. You know they also had disciples, and mm -hmm. those disciples had disciples. So it goes down. You know Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian. Uh, there's a lot of other, you know a lot of people that believed in historic pre what we would call historic premill. That's definitely interesting, man. Now, how um how did the, these Chileus define, you know, how, how did they define her in her day and age? So for example, we would call it historic pre-mill, but how would how did they define historic pre-mill in our own day and age? They had um, you know, the definition that I that I could find. Uh, in my research is that Chileism is the belief that there is a future 1,000 year reign of Christ or perfect peaceful reign and the Lord Jesus will be king on earth. And it was also known as millennialism. Mm -hmm. um, all coming from the word thousand, you know, they all mean a thousand. Chileoi means a thousand. Uh, millennium means a thousand. So they were all looking forward to that uh, time of peace that those that actual literal thousand years where Christ would reign on earth, it'd be perfect peace. Something I found was kind of interesting, of course, is more of like a Jewish tradition. We kind of know it's wrong, but something I kind of thought was interesting is they said that like, you know, um, the Lord made, you know, creation in six days and he rested on the Sabbath. And so they said they kind of equated that, but that would be kind of 6,000 years in history, I believe. And like on the 7,000 year, that's when Christ will establish his thousand years. It's kind of neat how they did that. Of course, we know that's not scripture, but it's kind of neat, a little Jew Jewish tradition. Right, right, right. Kind of like, you know, like, I guess it's essentially the same, you know, Chileasm is the same thing as the story of premium. So I guess we probably would have, you know, our posture, they all would posture. They didn't believe that, you know, the church would get snatched out of here anytime, or that the church would kind of, you know, be taken out of suffering. But rather, they believe kind of that, you know, the Antichrist will probably on the scene first, and the church would actually go through that seven-year period known as, you know, Jacob's struggle or the great tribulation. At the end of that period, um, Christ would come for his bride. But in the midst of the suffering, you know, before then, Christ would still be with his people. We kind of, you know, I guess the application for us, we know that, you know, Christ is always with his people, but specifically in time of suffering. And so it's kind of what the church believed. And then, of course, they believe in a literal thousand-year reign, like you said. Now, how do we how do we get, you know, teachers like, of course, post-mill, comes later on down the line, but we do know there were three particular people who were anti-Chileus, or I guess anti-millennial, I don't know how to say the word, millenarian, mm -hmm. like that, uh, mm -hmm. we call them Amil. But how did that teach you? So like, for example, if the first three centuries, when we say centuries, we're talking about the first 300 years of the other church, the prominent view and actually orthodoxy for eschatology was historic pre-mill. How do we get a teaching I guess out of that, such as Amil, how did they come about? You think? You know, well, just like you know, you think about today, there was different views on eschatology. There was different views back then, also. Um, so, amillennialism and it also existed in a in a form uh, at a certain time, side by side with uh, Chileus. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Justin Martyr said, I admitted to you formally that I and others and many others are of this opinion, premillennialism, 
and believe that such will take place as you assuredly are aware. But on the other hand, I signify to you that many who be belong to the pure and pious faith and our true Christians think otherwise. And he's saying there's other people that think uh, differently about the millennium. Hmm. Um, uh, there's a, it says here, pseudo Barnabas was from the first century and an apostolic father who wrote the epistle of Barnabas is considered to have been an amillennialist in the, in the second, in the second century. Uh, I said the hollow guy, those who rejected all of John's writing were all millennials. So, so was Caius in the first quarter of the third century, as was mentioned by Eusebius of Caesarea in, in his church history. So there's been a form of amillennialism throughout church history um, that, it, that has existed and, and, and has come to what we know as amillennialism now. Hmm. Now, I guess kind of, I guess a follow-up question. So if, I think Justin Martyr, I think Irenaeus, they kind of said something similar to like, you know, the orthodoxy, I guess, about this is, you know, chiliasm. But you were saying like, that's got another form of how we are to interpret, you know, I guess, Revelation 20. Now, mm -hmm. who are doing so, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, I think Irenaeus says that people who kind of symbolize or spiritualize, um, you know, future things are kind of like immature Christians. And then Justin Martyr says that these people who are doing the opposite are not real Christians in a sense. Now, how did, I guess, who kind of started that kind of movement, if you know what I'm asking? The Amiel movement. I believe, I, th I think it was Origen who started the Amiel movement. He den denied premillennialism mm -hmm. and presented am amillennialism. You know, Origen was very um, philosophical, I guess we would say. <laughs> uh, symbolic. He, when he, uh, uh, Interpret the scriptures, you know, he interpreted very symbolically, mm -hmm. not literally. So I believe that's where he made amillennialism popular. popular. Hmm. So, like, so they would not take that, you know, amillennialism doesn't take that thousand year reign literally, mm -hmm. a literal thousand years. They, they take it to mean uh, just a time period. So, you know, basically we're living in the millennium right now is what they would say. So I guess a follow-up question, you know, on top of that, so like with Origen, for example, um, if you look at, you know, closely at his life, he was kind of uh, influenced by, you know, Plato, you know, one of the philosophers, I forgot, the mm -hmm. or I think Aristotle. So like he was living in his age, you know, Plato, Aristotle, and he was saved possibly, you know, during his time period. And so you guys don't think about philosophy. A lot of these people kind of, they, they were kind of spiritualizing different things and like looking at things more in a symbolic way versus, you know, in a literal sense. But when we get to the scriptures, that's kind of difficult. Now, of course, you know, there's been Orthodox Christians on all parts, you know, kind of believing in Omni and post -mill. But we're talking about, you know, the essential things. We're not called to, you know, spiritualize or like symbolize, um, you know, the essential things. And for most part, a lot of people in the church, they call origin, you know, heretic. Now, I'm not, you know, a thousand percent sure, you know, when I die and go there, I see him. But, you know, I don't know. I didn't like him. It's kind of hard, but I know a lot of times many people call Origin a heretic, and yet he's the one kind of, I guess, um, originated the teaching of Omni, like you kind of said. I think also in church history, you know, another guy, his name is Eusebius. How are you going to call it or say it? <laughs> he also confirms, you know, Papias, uh, one of John's companions, wasn't mm -hmm. one of the disciples, but like one of his companions, he says, you know, he was kind of in disagreement with you, um, Papias, who was one of John, John's friends who taught of a literal, you know, thousand years. And so it started with origin, then it goes to Eusebius. And then I guess what really kicked it off, would you say probably the, the church father, the giant, his name is Augustine. Some call him Augustine. But how do we get, yeah. you know, orthodoxy and guess the correct view of eschatology possibly from John directly to Omnio and Augustine? Don't make any sense. <laughs> right, that makes sense. Yeah, and Augustine, you know, Augustine, I don't know if you've read any of Augustine, but you know the dude was a really good thinker. Mm -hmm. um, so I bet you if we we try to debate Augustine in his time, man, we would lose <laughs> when, when it came to uh, discussing the millennium. But you know, uh, a lot of this when you, when you think of that time period, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Rome kind of took over 
Uh, and then, you know, Christianity was the, I guess you could say the state religion. So, and at that time, that's why, you know, Roman Catholics are all, all millennium. They believe in all millennialism. They hold to that view. So it, when Augustine, you know, that he came in that time period, that time period where, you know, um, Christianity was the state religion. It's just interesting when you study history and how that, all that formulates. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think too, Augustine, he was the kind of first person kind of guess, you know, I guess a lot of people who kind of hold to Army of the Day, when we guess kind of view, you know, the first and second resurrection, how we have to interpret in Revelation 20, Augustine, he was the one that kind of states that, you know, the first resurrection is not, you know, a literal resurrection. People, you know, rise from, you know, the graves to be with Christ, but it was to signify people coming from deadness to life. And a second resurrection was a general, uh, you know, general resurrection when Christ returns. He would contemplate everything. And so he kind of taught, you know, the, the spiritual, you know, uh, I guess symbolic view of that chapter. But before that, like you said, for the first three centuries, we had the orthodoxy as historic premium. So it's kind of hard, man, how we got that far. Yeah, it's interesting when you like when you look back and when you study it, it's interesting how just to see how it changed over time. And where historic premium was not as not very popular actually yeah so actually like kind of what you said i think augustine did that around what, 350 a.d and so mm -hmm. the time of 350 a.d to you know the year 2021 um actually i mean it's kind of been a prominent view of like you know the church since then and so after the apostle john died we had of course his disciples in the early church for three centuries they all believe in historic premium and then after that with you know augustine the john the faith that he is we kind of taught you know, orthodoxy being Amil. And so then we kind of been in that kind of orthodoxy, you know, the, the right teaching of, uh, you know, eschatology is Amil. Now, of course, in the middle of that, we had the development of post-mill, which is a kind of more optimistic view of kind of Amil. And then we, of course, we had um, dispensationalism, the preacher, rapture, pre-mill. But for the right, most right. Amil has been the more dominant view now, I guess, does it kind of bother you, man, or like how, how do we kind of deal with that? that I know for some people, they say, you know, of course, you know, for the formers, our motto is, you know, um, reformed and always reforming. I could think of the Latin word right top of my head, but <laughs> I think it's a reformando. And so when you think about that, our goal as Christians is to always be reforming, always going back to the word of God. So could it have been possible that the church was wrong? The um, you know Ignatius and Polycarp who knew John personally could have been that John taught them a you know a false interpretation of the book of Revelation chapter twenty, and the early church was like kind of led in error, and it wasn't until you know Origen and Eusebius and Augustine that finally they reformed back to the scriptures and taught us the correct view, which is Amiel, that we're supposed to spiritualize the text and look at the view. How do you kind of deal with that? Um, I I don't. I don't think it's, I don't think that we could say that they were wrong. Um, like I say, the, the closer you get to the source, the, the more accurate interpretation you can get. So, you know, it's hard to sit here and say, man, Augustine was wrong. Because, uh, you know, like I said, you read Augustine and you're like, man, you know, dude was very, very intelligent, very articulate, very you know, I've learned a lot from him in his uh, reading his theology, but at the same time, you know, you know, Augustine could be wrong, and it's it's also the time period. You know, you got to remember the time period they were in. Uh, it was the time period when when Rome was become you know Rome was becoming Christian. They were they were uh, saying that Christianity is the state religion, so. It was easy for these things to get, um, how would you say it? Spiritual meaning. Yeah, it was easy for these things to be across the board. So how do you get from, you know, first three centuries, historical pre-mill to from, from the time of Augustine to the time of the reformers, most people are all mill. Well, you, you teach everybody that that's the correct view and then at the same time, you know, when you get to the reformers, they made the argument that we need to interpret the scriptures in the plain language of the people. So 
uh, so the people could read the Bible. So you got that time period where there were times where, you know, only the educated were reading the scriptures, mm. or only those who who served in the church were reading the scriptures. So, if, for example, me and you who grew up, you know, here uh, living a, a poor life, if we lived in that area, <laughs> if we lived in that area, we probably wouldn't have the scriptures in our hands. Yeah. So you just take what others have taught you. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that the era that it came out or the era that it was made popular makes a big difference on how something is, it, it has impact. Hmm. It's definitely difficult, like you said, man. Like I, when I think about, you know, all the giants of the faith that I kind of look up to and said, of course, I'm not talking about an idolatry sense, but I just, you know, thank God, you know, looking at their lives and seeing God, you know, in their lives, you know, people such as Edwards and um, Calvin, Luther, all these guys that we, we would call to call, you know, even Augustine, you know, Calvin got his theology most part from Augustine. Luther. Right, right. And so all these reformers that we know, you know, Knox and all the people swindling, everybody you can name in a sense, um, I guess that we would call, you know, great reformers, they were all omnial in their thinking. And so it makes you wonder, well, do we got it wrong? Well, if you go before the time of, you know, I guess in the reformers, they would, you know, the church would say, you know, they all got it wrong. So it's kind of. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. You know, the, the first theology book I, I remember reading is Lewis Burkhoff, and he's all millennialist. And I remember reading that section thinking, man, I, I, I don't know if I agree with this. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's just it's just funny how it, it comes out, you know, how just things change. Um, because, you know, in, in the, what is it, the 20th century, um, early 20th century is when um, a dispensational view of the pre-trib rapture uh, became popular. And that, you know, a lot of people hold that view now too. So yeah. I think, you know, it, it says a lot of the era when something comes out and how it gets popularized. That's kind of what we were talking about earlier. So like, kind of like, you know, the context, I guess, kind of dictates sometimes, which is crazy, you know, think, you know, we should let scripture kind of, you know, always be the, the source. But a lot of times, you know, the context around us may kind of change our theology. It's kind of crazy to think about that. Right, right, it is, it is. It is crazy to think about that, you know, and 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 to be honest with you, I've read, you know, like I said, I read Burkhoff's argument for millennialism, and I've read, I've read other people's, and and man, sometimes they they have me standing on the fence, ready to jump over, you know. <laughs> Definitely, man. I know uh, for even the Puritans, like you said, the prominent view was Amiel, and the Puritans were saying, no, that's not right. You know, like I said, I think you know Edwards is my favorite theologian. I don't think there's not, I guess, between Calvin and Edwards, those are my favorite theologians. And so, like for myself. All the Puritans ever leave, you know, like, no, people who behold Ami are wrong. It's going to get better and better and better. Right. <laughs> the time of them, it was really getting better and better for them. Right, right, right. The going forward, and, you know, we had great revivals, but it's kind of difficult, man. It's subject. That's why the source is the scriptures. And so let us go to the source of the scriptures, I guess. But before I guess, you know, I guess we close with the last couple of questions. Um, did you have any other kind of like, I guess, um, Written examples, kind of what some of those fathers, such as Barnabas, Papias, or Irenaeus, you, you kind of mentioned Justin Martyr earlier, but did you kind of have, you know, maybe a good two or three quotes from you know, some of the church fathers as what they thought? Man, I was, it was hard to find, man. I, it's hard to find these guys. Uh, even in my logo search, I, it was hard to come, hard to find them. Did you find any? A few. I know um, the one that you quoted earlier, Justin Martyr. Mm -hmm. He's probably one of Justin them. Martyr. Yeah, he's, you know, one of the easier ones we can find. Uh, he had a dialogue with Trifo, the Jew. You got, you kind of quoted earlier. Um, but we know Justin Martyr was kind of under that disciple, discipleship of John, you know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. passed down Ignatius and Polycarp. Polycarp, I think, was the one that kind of had an influence, in, you know, in Irenaeus' life. Uh, I'm trying to find. So, yes, uh, I think it was... What's the guy's name? Trifo the Jew. He was saying, mm -hmm. like, you know, mocking Justin Martin. Now, are you Jews really, you know, are you, you guys who believe in Christianity, really believe in a literal thousand year reign in the future? And Justin Martin is basically saying yes. And so, in this kind of like, you know, um, dispute with Trifo, he states this like a fond. 
that's interesting. He says, I'm not such a wretch trifle as to say one thing and mean another. I before confess to thee that I may and that I and many others are of the opinion that the millennial reign, so that we hold to thee, thoroughly prove that it will come to pass. But I have also signified unto thee, on the other hand, that many, even those the race of Christians, who follow not godly and pure doctrine, do not acknowledge for it. For I have demonstrated to thee that these indeed called Christians, but are atheists and impious heretics. Because that in all things they teach what is blasphemous, ungodly, and unsound. Then after saying he would commit his basically after that, he talks about um kind of what you said earlier, I believe, kind of explaining that this there will be a future literal thousand reign. And so I thought that's he kind of calls people who were kind of teaching another doctrine outside of you know Kiliasm false Christian. Yeah, it's it's certainly interesting to study, you know, the history and how it how it you know changed after the third century over to all millennialism, mm-hmm. and uh, you know how sometimes some of them made it a an essential issue when it's not really an essential issue. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think all those guys, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, they were kind of using. I guess what a lot of reasons why we don't have a lot more teachings about you know eschatology from the early church is because for the most part they all kind of held you know Kiliasm as orthodoxy and so the only times that you would see you know like I guess some kind of somebody defending that is whenever kind of just trying to defend the faith and so kind of like what you just said and within apologetics or within the church you know fathers to kind of defending Christianity they would talk about the future as an orthodoxy you know this is this is what Christianity is and so they would teach this is what we are to believe. But outside of that, you know, when someone was defending the faith, you wouldn't see, you know, I guess, you know, an explanation, a systematic theology on last things because there was no need. The whole right. church kind of believed in Kiliasm. Now, of course, today we're not living in the time of the apostles and such. So we don't know. And so we have a lot of systematic theology books, you know, how we are to interpret, you know, last things. And so now were you able yeah. to come apart? Oh, you go ahead, man. Go ahead, go ahead. I was going to ask you, were you able to find, as we get to close, were you able to find um, any kind of, you know, one or two quotes from like some of those guys about the gospel? Man, I, you know, we talk about Augustine on this uh, episode, so, and I love Augustine, man. Um, here's, I found a couple of quotes by Augustine. And here's one that says, but my sin was this, that I looked for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in him, but in myself and his other creatures. And the search led me instead to pain, confusion, and error. And he's talking about his sin, you know. And then uh, here's another one from Augustine. It says, to fall in love with God is the greatest romance. To seek him, the greatest adventure. To find him, the greatest human achievement. And this is my favorite Augustine quote right here. Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. Man, think about that, man. So, like, again, we're talking about astrology. This is all secondary. So, whether or not I may be wrong, whether or not Augustine may be wrong, or Calvin or Luther, or Edward, all these guys, we all could be wrong about how we are to interpret, you know, this view. But of course, God, He, he knows what's going to happen in the end. And so, what's essential is that we get the gospel right. And Augustine got the gospel right. You know, the fathers, the church fathers, for the most part, those who were let. They got the gospel right. You know, the apostles got the gospel right. So we need to get the gospel right too. And so, you know, I guess, you know, eschatology is you know, more of a secondary issue. You know, rather than that, you know, the gospel determines your salvation and your soul when you die. And so for Augustine kind of preach, you know, the gospel, we need to kind of get the gospel right as well. Not because of Augustine, but because what does the word of God say? And, you know, for a lot of people, they care more about theology than they do about the gospel itself. A lot of people right, right. read systematic theology books all day and never spend time with the Lord personally. Mm. But um, what would you say the gospel is, man? Again, you know, I guess as we get to close, man, for somebody who's kind of lost. Um, before I get, get into that, you know, when you think about eschatology, you know, the most important thing to believe to believe when it comes to eschatology is that Christ is coming back, you know. Hmm. Um, now, whether he comes back before the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation or after the tribulation, if we're living in a thousand years now or later, uh, all that is secondary. And what's most important is that Christ is coming back. And because he's coming back, 
there are many verses throughout scripture that says you, you have to be ready. You have to be ready. So when you, how are we how are we supposed to be ready? Well, by by adhering to the gospel. And what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is that Christ came and died on the cross for our sins. You know, sin is what separates us from Him. Uh, ever since Adam and Eve ate that fruit, all the way to 2021, uh, we've been people are born dead in sin, and, and the only freedom from that from sin is in Christ. Uh, we have to look to the cross, the beauty of the cross. Um, and, and look to Jesus for our salvation. We have to repent and believe in that uh, death and resurrection of Christ. And, and, and when we repent and believe, when we turn away from our sins and turn to the cross and cling to Christ, well, he saves us and he transforms us and gives us new life and, and helps us live a, a different way, takes us down the narrow path. And, and we live a uh, a life that pleases him now we you know instead of rejecting his commands we want we want to obey his commands we want to live for him so that's what the, the gospel does inside of us when we repent and believe and then we look forward to christ coming back again hmm. i guess too um i like to say too like our theology should shape our heart so like we shouldn't just be having a head knowledge but like that head knowledge should go to the heart and, you know, it kind of play a role in how we're living. So, like, if you don't if you read the Bible, you never change by it. You know, what are we doing in a sense? We go to church and hear a sermon, we never change by it. And what are we doing? Well, in the same way, eschatology, it also plays, a, you know, a practical role as you are as a Christian. So, like, if you're learning eschatology just for, you know, theological purposes, you already got it wrong. Eschatology, mm -hmm. like all other theologies, should shape, you know, your role and how you are to live as a Christian. Right. So thank you so much, man, for you know being a part of this episode and kind of talking about the church fathers. <laughs> man, I appreciate it. No problem, man. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.